Please stand for the reading of Scripture. We're going to read Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. You may be seated. We're beginning a new series today. After we concluded our series just before Advent on the Stolen Kingdom, we we knew that we wanted to stick with Genesis for a while. And so we we looked at, speaking of Abraham and then the other patriarchs, and we we thought of the the title, The Promised Kingdom, because I, I think that that fits very well with what's going on in the Abraham story. We have... The the stolen kingdom, right? The the rebellion of the evil one, tempting Adam and Eve to fall, the entrance of sin, this world that God had created had become tainted by sin. And yet, God does not abandon his creation. Instead, he launches a rescue mission. And that's what we see with Abraham. And the promise given through the story of Abraham, that is that coming in the future is a kingdom that will be greater than he can imagine. And we know that there are multiple fulfillments of that kingdom, one that happened in history, and a kingdom also that came and is still coming with the arrival, the death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. And so as we look at these stories, the the promised kingdom, I'd encourage you to be reading, following our Bible reading plan, to be reading the the story of Abraham, and our hope is that we'll be able to experience it um, in a different way than before. So, our passage this morning, here in Genesis 11, begins with a formula. Here in verse 27, this is the account of Terah. Now, this formula, what it means is that Terah is supposed to be the main character of what follows. It means that this is a story about him. You see, this formula is used 12 times in the book of Genesis. It's really like the organizing phrase in the book of Genesis. And every time, with only one or two exceptions, this included, is it not actually about what the formula says it will be about. So the formula is given, and then the story ends up being about something else. And every time that happens, it means something has gone wrong. Here we have a promise or a a formula saying this is a story about Terah. And as we read on, we see that the story ends up not really being about Terah. 
We're going to talk about that in a moment, but to begin here today, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Terah and his life. He lived in the city of Ur about 4,000 years ago. He had three sons. The eldest was named Haran. Now, that name, Haran, actually means holder of joy. His other two sons are named Abram and Nahor. Now, sadly, Terah's eldest son, Haran, died in Ur, but his younger sons both grew up and got married. Nahor married a woman named Milcah, who was also his niece, the daughter of Haran, which is weird, but these were very, very weird times. Abram married a woman named Sarai. Now, the city they lived in, the city of Ur, was amazing. We actually have a picture of it I want to show you here. Now, this isn't a uh, uh, live photograph, as you can imagine. This city is, that we're talking about today is 4,000 years old. But this is a, uh, an idea of what it might have looked like. Ur was surrounded um, by water, or in the midst of water as much as it could be. And the reason for that in the ancient world was because water was kind of rare, and so when you found some, you wanted to plant a city as close to it as possible. Now, it was a very large city, and in fact, in the time of Abraham, it was the largest city in the world, holding about 200,000 people, and it may have been the wealthiest city in the world as well. And one of the distinctive elements of this city is a ziggurat, or a temple, and you can see it here. I wish I had a laser pointer, but it's that tall building kind of in the center. Now, this temple, or this ziggurat, was a marvel. It's a thing that set Ur apart from other cities. In fact, we should have a picture of it. So, this ziggurat was incredible. It was made out of bricks. It was dedicated to the god Nana, which was the name they gave to the god who they believed was the moon. Now, this, this ziggurat was 210 feet long, 150 feet wide, and about 100 feet tall. Now, as far as the height goes, because I have a hard time envisioning things like that, I spoke briefly to an engineer who I gave no time to prepare at all this morning, and his guess was that it was about two to three times the height of Calvary. Now, we may consider this, the church that we are in, a small or a medium-sized church, but 4,000 years ago, a structure of this size was a marvel. This was a very big place. And it was dedicated, it was inhabited, they believed, God everything. He's always portrayed as this old man with like a long flowing beard. Now most people in the ancient world feared their gods, and not in the, the biblical sense of saying where, where we talk about how we fear our God, but they were afraid of them, and here's why. They believed that the gods were responsible for every part of their life. If your life was easy, it was because the gods were blessing you. If the, your life was hard, that's because the gods were punishing you. And the thing of it is, most people's lives were very, very, very hard. And so they sort of lived in the midst of this wondering, what have we done to offend the gods? How can we appease the gods? But those who worshipped this god felt differently. They lived in the biggest, wealthiest city around. 
their lives were much easier than most. And so, they believed he made them wealthy and powerful. In fact, they were so successful and they believed he was so powerful, they went off and founded another city 500 miles away called Haran, which we're going to see here in a little bit in the story. And Haran also flourished, became one of the biggest and most powerful and wealthiest cities in the world, also a place where they worshipped the moon. They worshipped Nana. Now, another reason why Nana was so popular is he was a fertility god. They believed he had something to do with fertility. So while worshipping him allowed you to take part in fertility rites, which as you read through the Old Testament, we see again and again is just a very easy way for a god to become popular. So this worship of this god was part of the identity of this city. So this was Terah's life. He lived in a big, wealthy, powerful, important city. He worshipped a god that he loved or had reason to love. He was privileged in many ways. And then one day, everything changed. The Bible tells us that God calls Abraham out of Ur, but I don't think it's just that simple. You see, it wasn't the son who decided where the family would go at this time. It was the father who decided where the family would move. If the son wanted to leave, then he left. But the patriarch didn't leave the family home because one of his sons did. He decided where the family went. Now, verse 31 tells us that Terah took his family and headed to the promised land. He took his family and headed out for Canaan. Not Abram, Terah. God tells us over and over again that he called Abram to leave his father's house and to go to the promised land. Hear me, there's only one way that this makes sense. God called Terah first. He's the patriarch that we never had, the one that maybe you'd never heard of before. In other words, Terah was told by Yahweh something like this. Leave this powerful city and travel 1,100 miles to Canaan, this place you've probably never been before, taking about three months of dangerous travel through the desert. And if you do, I'm going to give you this land. Now, in the ancient world, people believed that their gods were bound to specific places. And so when a god who isn't your god speaks to you and tells you to leave, you have a choice. You can stay and worship your own god, or you can go and worship the other. Terah had a choice, Yahweh or Nana. And he chose Yahweh. He left behind his son Nahor, who did not go with his father. He took Abraham, Sarai, and Abram's uh, heir, Lot, and left. Now, to get to Canaan, you had to, you had to go kind of roundabout, like an upside-down V to go around the desert. And the trip was about 1,100 miles, and it was hard. We have a quick video to show you the distance from point A to point B. I took this from Google Earth. All right, so we're zooming in on Ur here in the Middle East. 
So this is where Abraham and his father started. This is another picture of what Ur may have looked like. You can see the sea around it, the walls, and there were suburbs that branched out. There were just so many people that lived there, a wealthy and powerful city. And then we go from Ur, we go up quite a bit, and we move northwest to Haran. Now, we did that very quickly, but that is 550 miles. Now, these are ruins of Haran. There are still people that live there today. The name is still the same, which is incredible. We do not need that video. The rise of Bitcoin is not part of the sermon. Okay. So this is the point A to point B that Terah went with his son. Now, the, 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 the road that way is like an upside-down V. You had to not go from directly across from Ur to Canaan because you'd be crossing a desert that was impassable, right? So you had to go up and then down. You had to go around it. And at that top of that V is Haran. It was a place where you would stop. You would stay, you would refresh your supplies, and then you would move on. And it seems that Terah stayed put. And I imagine it was easy for him to do. I imagine that, that some part of him was pleased to be in a city so much like the one he had lived in for so long. A city that bore the same name as his son, who I'm sure he dearly missed. A city that worshipped the God that he had known for so long. And I imagine it was much easier than taking another 500 or so miles through the desert to go to a place he probably has never been, following a God he'd never met before. So he stays put, and Abram leaves his father behind and goes to the Holy Land. Now, before I, I go any further, I want to be clear about something. We're about to talk about what, what disobeying God cost Terah. We live today in a different time and under a different covenant. Hear me. You cannot lose your salvation by disobeying God. Now, if you turn away forever to worship another God, some people say that perhaps you've, you've turned away from your salvation. Others might say that you were never actually belonging to the Lord in the first place. That's not the debate I want to have today. But you, Christian, as you sit here today, undoubtedly, you remember a time when you felt called to do something and you didn't do it. Hear me. It does not mean that your salvation is in danger. Now, looking at this story, there's three characters I want to look at who all respond differently to God's call. The first one is Nahor. Now, Nahor was another son of Terah. His father receives this call from God and leaves his home, and Nahor says no. He stays put. This is something that we see happen sometimes to Christians when God calls them to do something and they just never move on it. It's also something we see happen with, with friends and loved ones who do not know the Lord and you see the Lord at work and it just seems like everything is moving in the direction of them to, coming to, to accept him and, and at some point they just say no. There are those who say no to God's calling. 
In the parable of the soils, these are seeds that fall along the path and then are come and eaten by birds. Or these are people who are Christians, but they've missed their chance to mature. It's not that another one will never come. It's that an opportunity to join in something that God has called them to is miss. We can truly miss out on what God calls us to be part of. That's true for us as individuals. It's also true for churches. It is possible for a church to want to carry on doing things as they've always done and miss the opportunity to join in something God has called them to that's new and different. One of the characters is Nahor, and Nahor is the one who just says no. Then there's Abram. Abram follows his father from his home all the way to Haran. But then, rather than staying put when his father does, Abram goes on. In this story, the calling is to go, and Abram follows. But it's important to know that in our lives, sometimes the calling is to do something. Sometimes the calling is to reach out to someone. Sometimes the calling is to go somewhere, and sometimes the calling is to stay. And one of the things that this story does is it kind of shows us a difference of generations here. We have the older generation that decides to stay and the younger generation that decides to go. And this is something also we see in the church sometimes when the younger generation is ready to follow and the older generation struggles. When those of us who are called to be mature and leaders are the ones who are not willing to follow, we've missed something very, very important. And it's important for all of us who think of ourselves as the older generation or who think of ourselves as leaders or models or examples to have an ear for what God has called us to and be willing to go. To let go even of of the familiar, even of the things that are hard to let go of. I remember this came up for me when we were talking about changing our church name a few years ago. I stayed as much out of that process as I could because it was right around the time also when I was being considered for senior pastor and I just did not think it was a good idea for me to put my fingerprints all over this process. So I kind of stepped back. But I remember sitting in the meeting where we we had people coming up to the front back when we still had meetings in one room because we didn't know, you know, that it's better to do Zoom, I guess. Hopefully not forever. Hopefully that's not forever. But anyways, and I I remember people talking about letting go of the name Mennonite and how painful that was for some. And while I I like everything about the history of Mennonites, I didn't have that gut-level pain at the idea of letting it go that I know some others did. But then someone got up and said, why are we we keeping the name Calvary? If if we're letting, if we're going to change our name, why not change our name? And then in that moment, deep in my soul, what rose up was because my church is named Calvary. You need to let that one go. And I realized what happened, even though we ended up keeping the name, and I think that was the right decision, was that something that was familiar, that was precious to me, that was not actually something that was necessary as part of our calling from God, felt that way to me. The older generation has to be careful not to let those things that feel or seem important to us that are truly options or not something God has called us to ever take the place of what God has in mind for us. 
And that is hard to do. I imagine only gets harder. I imagine that's one of the ways God encourages us to mature is by making, letting go of those things more and more difficult as they become more and more ingrained in our hearts. But the opposite is true too. And for me, since I spent so much time as a youth pastor, this is one of the things that really gets me is when you have a family of faith and a young person who just decides, no, I want to go another direction. And so we see the, the older generation carrying on faithfully. You could say continuing on to the promised land when the younger generation who was raised in the church decides to stay in Haran. And of course, if that happens, the hope is always that they, they make the journey later, that they come back to the faith. But this is something we see. We see it when the older need to be led by the younger, and we see it when the younger need to be led by the older. Abram is who you want to be in this story. Of course, as you read on, Abram has a lot of problems. He is certainly not perfect. If you've not read those stories before, I encourage you to do so, because Abram is someone I can relate to a lot, someone who wants to be faithful, but who makes mistake after mistake after mistake. I think he's relatable for all of us. But he also, also gives us this encouragement that even when those around us, even the, those we care about most, even when those we're connected to deeply, say no, still we're called to carry forth wherever God has asked us to go. Now I want to talk about Terah, who made it halfway to the promised land. And I wondered this week, why didn't he make it? It'd be nice if we had some words for Terah in the story, but we don't. So we're left to just kind of guess. I expect that one of the reasons he didn't make it is it was very, very hard. This was not an easy trip. We should have actually a map of it here. Not, I, I missed a slide, so skip. There we go. This may not look very long on this map, but this was a long way to go in difficult terrain. And when you get halfway through a difficult trip, and here is a place to stay that's safe, there's no, no one trying to, to rob you or, or overtake you or kidnap you. There's no, no treachery as far as traveling goes at that time. You're not going through the heat on the back of a camel 10 miles a day at the most slowly. I imagine it was attractive to just stay put. You see, sometimes the thing God calls us to is hard. What is it God's called you to that's hard? There's probably several things. One of them might be that sin struggle that you find yourself in the midst of, and again and again and again you try to obey, you try to resist, you try to submit, you try to follow, you fall down over and over and over again, and then at some point it just seems like it's easier to not worry about it. The call for us is not to be perfect. Abram is not. Perfect. The call for us is to follow, to not stop rising up again and committing to following Jesus. To not stop this repentance and recommitment that the Christian is called to every single day. 
I imagine it was hard. Another thing I think that was at work in the heart of terror was idolatry. The God of his youth was just so much easier to follow. This is something we struggle with in our country. I love our country, but there are values that we call American values that are just contrary to the gospel. One of those is the accumulation of wealth. As I read through the gospels, and I've read through the book of Luke over the past couple of weeks, and I'm just struck again and again with how often Jesus talks about money, and never once does he sound like an American. This wealth he talks about is this spiritual danger. And the thing that's so uncomfortable is as we read that, we're tempted to think that wealthy means wealthier than me. But everyone here almost certainly fits Jesus' description of wealthy. Our American value tells us that that's okay, and we look for reason after reason after reason to accumulate and hold on. And I think that it's, it's an uncomfortable truth that we have to wrestle with that American value over the gospel value as we struggle with the idolatry of money. Another one, very simply, I'll, I'll call the flesh. The things that are easy and comfortable that may not be what God has called us to. There's a lot of examples. I want to pick just two quickly. One of the things that bothers me so much, and I, I have been guilty of this, is this expectation we have that everybody is supposed to be married. And actually, as we read the New Testament, we see something very different than that. We see that there is a good, strong way, a healthy way that God calls people to singleness. And we see that God sometimes calls people to marriage. But, but while we may entertain that, we don't Really, And I think all of us know that one single person. We're just wondering when they're going to get married. That's evidence of this thing in us that leads us to believe that this is the way we're supposed to be. And I think people miss their calling to singleness and all the good things that God can do in the midst of it because of this very American value of the American dream that involves a marriage. Marriage is not bad. I'm married and I'm very glad to be married. I know, hopefully, many of you here that are married are also glad to be married. Hopefully all of you that are here that are married are glad to be married. But singleness is not a bad thing, and it is actually a calling from the Lord. In fact, you are called to be single until you're called to be married. And another one is this, where will I be? We struggle both with, I want to stay with the familiar, and I want to leave home. And both of those can be unhealthy, unholy poles. Sometimes we need to bloom where we're planted. One of the ways God calls us is where we're born. If you grow up and cannot wait to leave home just because it's home and it's familiar, that's not good. At the same time, being unwilling to leave home, even when God calls us away, isn't good either. I wonder sometimes how many people are called to be missionaries and never really entertain it because we're so accustomed to the comfortable. And I wonder other times how many people have been called away because God had a picture in mind for them that was amazing. But they stayed put because it's easy and comfortable. What is it God has called you to that you find yourself struggling 
with being halfway to and staying put. This is true of individuals. It's true of a church. If we don't follow where God wants us to go, we may find that our story gets filled in by someone else. One of the themes of this series as we go through it is going to be the tests that God gives us. And I believe that God still gives us tests. We see them in the story of Abraham very clearly. But still in our lives there are these choices where there is a clear difference between what God desires and what the flesh desires. We encounter them dozens, hundreds of times every day. Will I get up for church today? Will I invite my neighbor to church? Will I let my temper get the better of me? Will I lie to get out of trouble? Will I conceal my sin or confess it again and again and again throughout the day, we are brought to these points of choosing. God calls us one way, the flesh desires the other. These tests are for our good. It is good that God brings us to these places again and again, because it's how we grow, learning to submit to him by the power of the Spirit and choose what God has in mind for us. And if we turn away from them, if we fail them, we make this decision to, to just do what the flesh is. I've, I've committed to Jesus, and now I just go to church on Sundays, and that's all that I can be expected to do. We miss out on so, so much. These tests allow us to be transformed by submitting to the Spirit and being changed by Him. We're actually made more like God. That, that, that driver who cuts you off in traffic, and you feel the anger rise up, in that moment you have an opportunity to become more like God as you deal with this in some other way than I dealt with it when it happened to me three days ago in Peoria. It's an opportunity to be changed, to be more like him. Oftentimes it's an opportunity to be part of what God is doing in someone's life or in a place that he's called you to go. We're in the midst of a difficult time to do church, especially in a time to grow as a church. And this year we're going to be having several opportunities to reach out, to engage our community. How we as a church respond to those opportunities, those tests, those callings, will have an effect on the health of our church going forward. There will be a lot of churches that don't make it out of last year and this year intact. A lot have already closed. I don't believe Calvary will be one of them, but some of that is up to how we respond when the Spirit creates opportunities that we're a little uncomfortable with. And all of this is part of following Jesus. Abraham follows the call of God. For us, that has a clearer picture. We're called to follow Jesus. And to follow behind him wherever he leads, one step at a time. Not necessarily knowing where we're going, not necessarily knowing whether or not we are capable of doing the, play, the thing he's leading us to. The thing that separated Abram from his brother or his father was faithfulness. This willingness to follow one step after the other. And if, if you look at the story of Abram, it's not clear. He doesn't just get to go to Canaan, he goes all over the place. The story is complicated. God leads him on a winding road, you could say. But Abram follows. Hebrews 11, 8 verse 10 says this. Eight, chapters 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he'd later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed 
and he went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. We follow Jesus one step at a time, and we're called to do it faithfully. So the question I have for you today, what I want to leave with before we pray is this. What has God called you to? And I imagine there's an answer in you. Perhaps it's that sin you've been struggling with. Perhaps it's something you've been wrestling with. You've thought, maybe God wants me to do this, but I'm afraid. I'm supposed to stay behind this. I'm sorry. What is it that God has called you to? And I want to challenge you. Whatever has led you to stay put. Let it go. Tell Jesus, I'm going to follow you one step at a time. It might be scary. It might be hard. It might be a long journey. You might not know where it's going to end. The question for us has to be, when Jesus leads, will we follow or will we stay put? Pray with me. Father God, we come before you thankful for blessings. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you would work in our hearts to make us ready to say yes to you. And not just to say yes, but to follow through. Whether it's a New Year's resolution that regards our devotions or our faith practice, whether it's something you've asked us to do and we're just like Moses, not sure that we're equipped We pray that you give us the faith of Abraham to follow and to trust, to trust you more than we trust ourselves. We pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.